0: I have, a, I have a, a pop quiz for you, though, to get started. This is a true or false quiz. And um, I want you to help me determine whether or not the situation I describe is good or bad. All right. So if it's, um, let me just ask the question. Questions here. All right. Question number one An innocent man goes to prison after his brothers betray him and he's done nothing wrong. Is that good or bad? a godly man is destitute and suffering without necessary food that he needs to survive is that a good or a bad thing an innocent man is executed on trumped up charges and a false testimony is that a good or a bad thing now since I'm mentioning those in the context of a sermon you probably have connected them with the Bible stories that they're from And uh, our natural instinct our natural response to questions of the innocent suffering are to are to think well that's that's a bad thing brothers shouldn't do that to their siblings godly men shouldn't suffer one innocent people shouldn't be recipients of the death penalty but we know the rest of the story right we know that Joseph while the devil may have meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And Joseph, brothers betrayed him, but God used it for his good to make him the prime minister in Egypt and to supply food and deliverance for the people of God. So we know what was meant for evil was used for good. The apostle Paul suffered want, but his conclusion was God was perfecting my strength in weakness. And of course, the man who was executed on the basis of false testimony and trumped up charges was none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what was meant for evil was for our good. And here's my point this morning. Our initial reactions to the problems we face in life are based on limited information, right? We, we don't know the full picture. We have only limited information. Our perspective is limited. We say that's bad to things that God may be saying are for our good. Our, inf- our information is limited, but God's information is limitless. His information, he knows all things. Our information, since it is limited, is unreliable, but his judgment, because it's based on his limitless information, the fact that he is omniscient, he's all-knowing, his judgment is totally reliable. Our judgment is always suspect. It's always unreliable to some degree or another because we have limited information. But God's judgment is always reliable because he has limitless information. The problem is we live in a world that's a lot like the book of Judges. We live in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And the problem with everyone doing what they think is best is that none of us always knows what is best. We think we know what's best, but we don't know for sure always what is best. If we could fit God into our understanding, do you realize this morning that our God would cease to be God Almighty? If we could fit him into our minds, he would simply become a God of mythology a God that we could somehow manipulate. If we understood everything there is to know about God, he would be a God of our own creation, he would be a God of mythology, he would be a God we could manipulate, and he would cease to be the eternal holy God that is written about in the pages of Scripture. We want, at least I know I want, my God, the God of eternity, to be all-powerful on my behalf, and thank God that he is. But the problem is we also want him to be small enough to fit within our minds. That's the problem. Because if we can get God small enough to fit in our minds, then we can get God to cater toward us. But it's impossible for God to do both. He can't be the eternal, holy, limitless God And also be a God that we can fully comprehend in our minds. Because he would cease to be who he really is. And so we must submit ourselves and what we think to him. And say to him, God, you are all-knowing. You are all-powerful. And I am not. You're the king. I am not. And I submit my life to you. But the problem is we wrestle with pride, right? We wrestle with wanting things our way. That's the fallen human condition. But we must submit ourselves humbly to God and say, God, you're king. I'm not. I trust you. So how do we learn to trust God more than our limited opinions, more than our own opinions, more than our own understandings? Well, we have to put His word above our word. As we're told in the book of Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now I've said all that this morning to lead into as we've been studying in the book of Habakkuk the last couple of weeks. We've seen that Habakkuk was a man who was deeply concerned. He was deeply troubled with the condition of his nation. He cries out to God for help. God doesn't seem to answer. And so Habakkuk begins to question why. God answers Habakkuk's questions. But God's answer doesn't match Habakkuk's own understanding. What he wanted, what he understood. God told him that he was in fact going to judge Judah for their sins. That he was going to use the Babylonians to do it. Well, that just blew Habakkuk's mind. He couldn't wrap his mind around that idea. And so he goes back to God with more questions how, God, can you use a sinful nation to judge Judah, which, by the way, was a sinful nation, but a nation that at least Habakkuk considered, well, at least we're more righteous than the Babylonians, if that's possible. And he's got, how could you use a sinful, totally godless nation to judge us? That was one of his questions. His other question was, God, how long can you are you going to allow the Babylonians to carry out your justice? But Habakkuk knew that Judah would not be utterly destroyed because God had made promises to them. But he didn't know how long God was going to allow it, his judgment to be carried out on Judah through the Babylonians. And what we learn in the book of Habakkuk is that God fleshes out the principles of us walking by faith in the pages of Habakkuk. And as we saw last Sunday, the words of Habakkuk are quoted again and again in the New Testament of how we are to live by faith. We live by faith in uncertain times, in dark times, in times when we don't understand what God's doing. We must live by faith. And I told you last Sunday that... God sometimes makes us wait for his answers, but we must always trust. Sometimes we must wait, but always we must trust. And so Habakkuk asked his second round of questions. He went up in his watchtower and he waited on God to answer. And God answered. And as we saw, he said, wait and trust. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to return to Habakkuk chapter 2 for a few minutes. And I want to look at verses 2 through 4 again. I want to take a little bit of a deeper dive. And we're going to kind of take a little detour this morning. But I I want you to see God's answer to Habakkuk's second round of questions. And we're going to take a second look at it. All right? So look with me. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. Habakkuk says, And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by their faith. Now, I didn't intend this week to return to this passage of Scripture. But I felt like, as I was preparing, that this is what God would have me to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk about... God's response to our questions. And that's what we have been looking at overall here in the book of Habakkuk. But I I just want you to focus. I want to focus particularly on God's answers this morning. And I want you to see that God's answer to Habakkuk, first of all, was to be written. The Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on the tablets. So God says to Habakkuk, I want you to write down what I'm telling you as a testimony to God's actions that were going to be fulfilled in the future. So God is telling Habakkuk, the Babylonians are coming, but I'm ultimately, I'm gonna judge the Babylonians. And I want you, Habakkuk, to write that down. Write that down. So Habakkuk is called to step out in obedience and write down what God has to say. And because Habakkuk obeyed God's instructions and wrote down, what God said, we have it in the book that you hold in your hands, God's word. So it's part of God's inspired word of God for us. And thank God he has spoken. Amen. God's revealed to us in he's revealed himself to us in our in our consciences and in creation. We call that general revelation. When I look out here this morning, I can see by God's handiwork there must be a God because I see his creation. I also know that he has written his laws upon our hearts, on our consciences. That's general revelation. Everybody has it, even the, the heathen on, on t- in ten buck two somewhere. God has revealed himself to them generally through creation and in their conscience. But thank God he has also given special revelation. Special revelation reveals to us the reasons for what general revelation shows us. And when you look out and you see creation, you see that creation is fallen. And because God has written his laws upon our hearts, we also know that outside of God's grace, we're all guilty but special revelation shows us why that is we see why that is through god's word which was written for our instruction and so by inspiration we mean that god's word was given by revelation god's word is inspired but it is also infallible which simply means that it cannot fail It can be trusted. God's word will never mislead us. When God told Habakkuk that the Babylonians were coming, and then he told Habakkuk that he was going, he was pronouncing woes upon Babylon, and Babylon would be judged, God's word did not fail because it is infallible. It's infallible in every statement that it makes, it will not fail. And God's word has told us things that are going to happen in the future. Jeff read about some of them from the book of Revelation this morning. Things that are going to take place in the future. And I'm here to remind you this morning that God's word will not fail. It is the infallible, inspired word of God. But it is also the inerrant word of God, which simply means that it is without error. The Bible is accurate in every statement that it makes. And since God is a God who cannot lie, and he cannot make a mistake, the Bible, which is God's word, is without error. It is without mistake. It was written by 40-some authors over a period of 1,500-plus years who were authors who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as we're told about in the book of 1 Peter. And it is... It is without error. We can trust in God's word. God's word, what God's word says, it says what is true. Amen? It says what is true. It demands what is right. And it provides what is good. It says what is true. It demands what is right. And it provides what is good. Now, if I was in our church building this morning, I'd ask the children what the longest chapter in the Bible is. And I'm sure some of them, being as smart as they are, would tell me Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a beautiful psalm. As you probably know, it's an acrostic. There's eight verses in every stanza. There's each Each of those stanzas begin with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Every line in the stanza begins, like the first eight verses, all begin with the Hebrew word ALF. They all begin with that word. We don't see that in English, of course. But on and on that goes for 22 stanzas and 176 verses, because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And the psalmist is again and again in Psalm 119 making some reference to the Word of God. In fact, in 169 of the 176 verses, the psalmist refers in some way to the Word of God. Now, what I want you to see this morning, we're just going to take a little detour out of Habakkuk, just to reinforce what I'm saying from Habakkuk, but I want you to go with me to Psalm 119 for a moment, and I want you to see some things about God's Word. I just told you that what God's Word says, it says what is true. The psalmist in Psalm 119 said we can trust in the word knowing that it's altogether true. You know, we can't trust everything we read on the internet, believe it or not. Everything you see on Facebook isn't true. I know that may be news to some of you. Believe it or not, some of the conspiracy theories that are floating around right now are not true. That may be earth shattering, but it's not all true. All right. Just because it's on Facebook, and Facebook has their little their little uh, things that tell you what's true and what's not true, that doesn't mean that Facebook's right in what they think's true. And you can't trust the fake news either, right? You can't trust what's on the news, and you certainly can't trust what politicians say, right? Have, <laughs> that really got a good horn honk there. Statistics can be can be manipulated. Fact checkers can be wrong. Photographs can be faked. Magazine covers can be photoshopped. Our teachers, our friends, science, studies, even our eyes can deceive us. But there's one thing that will never be proven true and the untrue and that is the word of God because everything God's word says is true. It says what is true. It also demands what is right. In Psalm 119, verse 75, the psalmist said, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. The psalmist is gladly acknowledging God's right to issue commands, and he humbly accepts that what God commands is right, because God's word always demands what is right. All God's commands are sure is what he says in Psalm 119 verse 86 and verse 128 He says all God's precepts are right Now sometimes I hear people admit that they don't like what the Bible says But since it's what the Bible says they said well, I'll still obey it Now that might be admirable on one hand, but on another hand that's not enough We should go one step further and we should see the rightness and the goodness to everything that God has commanded. Because when God makes a command, it is righteous, it is what is right. And so he doesn't give us commands. Simply to restrict us or to make us miserable. He never requires what is impure. He never requires what is unloving. He never requires what is unwise. His demands are always noble. They're always just. They're always right. Because God's word always demands what is right. But God's word also always provides what is good. And I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for that. Because according to Psalm 119, God's word is the way to happiness. You can see that in verses one and two. In verse six, we see it's the way to avoid shame. In verse nine, God's word is the way to safety. In verse 24, it's the way to wise counsel. In verse 28, it's what gives us strength. In verse 43, it's what gives us hope. in in verses 98 to 100 it provides wisdom 130 it provides wisdom verse 105 it shows us the way to go God's word provides what is good and if you want to know how to rightly live in the midst of a pandemic believe it or not where you need to look is not on Facebook and not on the news you need to look in God's Word because God's Word always provides what is good. Now as the people of God we believe the Word of God can be trusted because it commands what is right and it provides what is good. But it's one thing to say you believe all that. It's one thing to say you believe that this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. But that's not enough. If you read through Psalm 119, you quickly see that the psalmist felt something about the Word of God. So what should we do with God's Word? What should we do with it? Well, certainly we should delight in God's Word. Over and over again, the psalmist says he delights in the Word of God. Verse 14, he says, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as in much as, as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 69, the insolent may may smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Verse 77, he says, let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out But your commandments are my delight. I long, verse 174 says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, for your law is my delight. Do you get the picture? The psalmist delighted himself in God's word. It wasn't just something that he believed in. It was something he delighted himself in. Over and over again, he expresses his delight in the Word of God. And the flip side of that is he experienced hot indignation toward those who did not delight in God's Word. You can see that in verse 48, verse 97, 119, 127, 140. Verse 53, he he. He has that hot indignation that seizes him because of the wicked. Why? Because they forsake God's law. Zeal consumed him when his foes forgot God's words. In verse 139. The faithless and the disobedient he looked upon with disgust. In verse 158. Now that language may sound harsh to us. But it's an indication how little we treasure the word of God. How little we delight in it. Because what do you feel if somebody expresses disgust for the beauty of your spouse? Or what happens if somebody doesn't see your child as being beautiful? Well, what would you feel? You'd feel disgust. You'd probably feel anger because that's your child. That's your spouse, the one in whom you delight. Now, if you delight yourself in God's word, you won't be indifferent to those who are disgusted by it because you delight in it. Those who disregard God's word will trouble you because you know God is true and he's spoken to us through his word. So we should delight in God's word, but the psalmist not only delighted in it, but he also desired it. Now that that seems pretty obvious, right? Well, he expresses his longing to keep God's commandments at least six times in Psalm 119. Verse 5, verse 10, verse 17, verse 20, verse 40, verse 131. He expresses his desire for his longing for keeping God's commands. He expresses his desire to understand the Word of God at least 14 times in Psalm 119. There's simply no question that the psalmist desired God's Word. He not only delighted in it, he desired it. Now our lives are animated by what we desire. It's what gets us up in the morning. It's what we dream about, what we pray about, the things that we desire. How strong is your desire to know and understand and keep the Word of God? The psalmist so desired the Word of God that he considered suffering in his life a blessing because it helped him become more obedient to God's commands. Listen to what he says in verse 71, Psalm 119. He said, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Now think about that. Affliction good, suffering good. That's what the psalmist said. And the reason it was good, because it helped him become more obedient to God's commands. Do you desire God's word that much that you're willing to suffer if it helps you become more obedient to it? The Apostle Paul told us to desire the sincere milk of God's Word like newborn babies. Is that what expresses your desire for God's Word? You see, we should delight in it, we should desire it, but we should also depend upon it. The psalmist was constantly aware of his need of the Word of God. He depended upon it. And the Word of God is one of those things we should really need and really depend upon. Now, I've said all that. Let's go back to Habakkuk here. I've said all of that to express Habakkuk here began his appeal, crying out to God, feeling like God wasn't listening. And in the end, Habakkuk came to understand that it was really him who needed to listen to God. And you know, in, in Amos' day, the prophet Amos in his day, he said there was a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. The problem is not that God hasn't spoken or that he isn't speaking. The problem is that on our end we're not listening. We're not listening. God has spoken, he's spoken through his word, and we need to listen. Now I've told you in the past when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus could have pushed, I, I've referred to it as God's as his God button. He was fully God and fully man and being fully God, he could have, he could have performed a miracle to overcome Satan. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have done all kinds of miracles because he was God. But he was also fully man. And how did he overcome the temptation of the enemy? He depended upon the same two resources that you and I possess. He depended upon the spirit of God and the word of God. And then Jesus quoted to the devil. He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. And he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what Jesus was showing us is that you and I must absolutely depend upon the word of God as if it was our very food. The food we eat, the bread we eat. And the psalmist said in Psalm 119, he said, How can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? Your word. Have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you? You and I, we can depend upon the word of God as a defense against the enemy of our souls. And I can't tell you the number of times when the enemy has come against me and it's been God's word that has helped me to overcome the enemy. Why? Because it is our defense. You see, not only should we delight in God's word and desire God's word and depend upon God's word because it is our defense against the enemy, but we must also declare God's word, which leads me to my second point. I know I'm out of time probably, but that's okay. My second point this morning, I want you to see, not only was God's answer written, it was to be written, but God's answer would also be witness to. Back to Habakkuk here now. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me, Write the vision. Alright? So it was to be written. And then he says, Make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. Now, perhaps you're wondering, how do I get God's answer would be witness to from those, from that second part of the verse there. Initially, when I read that, I thought, well, that second part's a warning. Write these words so people will see it, read it, and warn and be warned and run. That's what I thought at first. But the more I began to study it, the more I began to understand that's not what that means. In the Hebrew, it's my understanding that literally it's write a vision, make it plain upon tablets, so the one reading may run into it. Similar phrase is used in Proverbs where we're told that the name of Yahweh, the name of God is a strong tower and the righteous will run into it and find security. The righteous will run into the name of the Lord just as the one who is oppressed would run into a tower for safety. Now the running here is, it's metaphorical. The the runner finds security they find comfort in what's written. So the message is not a message that is simply a message of warning, but it's a message of encouragement and hope. but it's a message that would be that would come after judge. Remember God's telling Judah, you're going to be judged, but God wants Habakkuk to write this so that after they are judged, they'll be reminded of what God had said so Babylon's Babylon's coming but that threat isn't going to persist forever God's gonna also judge Babylon and when he does and God's people come back and they see in God's Word through what Habakkuk wrote that God was true he was true he was right and so the message would encourage them it would proclaim not only the sure punishment of Babylon's pride but God would be demonstrating to his own faithful people that they would be vindicated and not put to shame and so ultimately God tells Habakkuk here that Habakkuk was to write all this down because there would come a day in which the people would give witness to the fact that what God had said was true and so Habakkuk, write it down so that someday those who read it will witness to the fact that what I said would happen, happened. And now we read it on the other side of history and we see exactly that. What God said would happen, happened. And so we bear witness to it now. Here's my point. When you desire God's word, and you delight in God's word, and you depend upon God's word, you can humbly and confidently declare God's word because he has proven it true over and over and over again. And so we can witness to the fact that what God says will happen will happen because it's happened over and over again. So what God says happening going to happen in Revelation will happen because God always keeps his word so we can witness to it confidently. So God's answer was to be written. God's answer was to be bore witness to. And God's answers always, or often, require waiting. That's point number three. We talked about this a little last Sunday. I told you that God's answer to Habakkuk's question was wait and trust. Wait, someday you'll understand the reasons why. You'll understand by and by why I'm using Babylon, but wait. Trust, Habakkuk. Trust, because the righteous live by faith. Now the King James, if you have it, I think I printed it on your paper, translates verse 3 this way. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Was God having a hard time making up his mind here? Will it tarry or will it not? Well, the reality is there's two Hebrew words here. The English Standard Version tries to clear this up. The first Hebrew word that's used means wait. It might linger for a while, but you gotta wait for it. It may come slowly. And God's answers to us often come slowly. Remember, if we could fit God into our minds, he would cease to be God. But he sees things from the other side. So we sometimes have to wait. And so the English Standard Version puts it, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. There are times in which it may take a while. And that's what the second Hebrew word means. It might take a while, but it will come. It will come. And there are times in which God may seem that he's running late. You remember Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was dying. Jesus tarried a couple extra days. By the time he got to their house, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She thought Jesus was late. But God's clock keeps perfect time. It's our clocks that have to be adjusted from time to time. In fact, every time I get my wife's car, her clock needs to be adjusted. And that's because she always sets her clock ahead in order to trick herself into thinking she has more time to get to work or something. I don't know why she does it. It Hasn't made sense to me yet. But it's always our clocks that need adjusted. God's clock always keeps perfect time. We simply have to trust him. Now I told you the other day on Tuesday of this week I was a little disappointed by the governor when she instituted our current safer at home policy. I wanted to be in our building this week. That meant when she instituted that we'd likely have to be doing this for the next few weeks. I was disappointed. I was disappointed when she issued that because it may mean that we won't have youth camp this summer. It may mean we won't be able to have camp meeting this summer. And that's discouraging to me, disappointing to me. And you wonder at times, well, God, what in the world are you doing? Now in the grand scheme of things, and in the grand scheme of my life, those disappointments are very minor. Summer's going to be different this year. Minor. Those are minor questions in comparison to some of the big questions that we wrestle with. We wrestle with some big questions at times. But I'm grateful this morning that God has given us the answer to our questions. He's written, He's provided His answer to our questions in His Word. Now, He doesn't specifically answer every question like you won't necessarily find in God's word in the year 2020, there's gonna be a pandemic and you're gonna to have to go in quarantine for a while and here's the reason why, okay? You won't, you won't find those specifics in God's word, but you do find what God's purpose is behind every problem that we face. He, all, he tells us that all things work together for our good, everything we face works together for our good to those who are called according to his purposes and then he goes on and he tells us in Romans 8 29 what his purposes are for us that we be conformed to the image of his son so right now what is God doing in this pandemic he's conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ so are you being conformed Christ's image. How's your response to all this? Are you responding in anger? Are you responding in, in selfishness? Are you responding in frustration? I mean, those are all natural emotions at times, but we need to understand that God has shown us in his word that everything we face, ultimately God is using to conform us to his son's image. And that's ultimately really all that matters. Because if we wanna make it to heaven someday, we're gonna to have to be a holy people who have been conformed to the image of his son. And I want to be holy as he is holy because God commands it. And so I must allow God to mold me and shape me and grow me during this time of quarantine I must allow God to do his work in my life. I must not allow this situation to push me away from God. I must allow God to do his work in my life. And one of the ways that he does that work is through us aligning our lives to his word. And so my question for you, and actually I gave you 10 questions. There's a lot of them. And you can look over them this afternoon and reflect upon them yourself. We've all had times in which we've been frustrated with God's timing. You ever received an answer you didn't like? We probably all have. How do you resolve issues in the Bible that you disagree with? Well, who needs to change? You do some questions there for you to reflect on this afternoon. But I hope that you will allow God to work in your life during this time and that you will delight in, that you will desire, that you will depend upon and that you will declare God's word to be true. His answers have been written. His answers are to be witnessed to. And the ultimate answer to all of our questions, we're gonna have to wait on. But there's coming a day when all the questions will be answered. But until then, we must allow God the Holy Spirit to do his work in our life in the right now. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us, Lord, to hide your words in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Thank you for giving us your word. Help us, Lord, to bear witness to it in our lives. Help us to run to it. Help us, Lord, to just witness, Lord, the fact that you always keep your promises. Your word is true and we can depend upon it. And Lord, while we wait for that ultimate fulfillment of all your promises, while we wait for the ultimate answer to all of our questions, Help us, Lord, to allow Your Spirit to do Your work through Your Word and conform us to the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, if there is any of us, Lord, under the sound of my voice who are have sin in their life, sin that is separating You from them, I pray that You will help them to repent of their sin and turn by faith to You and trust in You for salvation. Thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your presence that has been with us this morning in this drive-in service. May you continue to work in our hearts and our lives in the coming days. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you. Thank you for coming. You're dismissed.